defend the Hollywood of Louis B. Mayer and David O. Selznick. I'd argue, however, that the studio system at its best created a diverse menu of shrewdly crafted commercial fare. Survey a list of the ten nominees for Best Picture in 1943. Casablanca, For Whom the Bell Tolls, In Which We Serve, Heaven Can Wait, The Human Comedy, The More the Merrier, Madame Curie, The Oxbow Incident, The Song of Bernadette, and Watch on the Rhine. There's true diversity here, even glints of artistry. Even in the 60s and 70s, after TV stole much of Hollywood's habit audience, the studios were turning out edgy movies like Bonnie and Clyde, The Godfather, Taxi Driver, and Chinatown. I was right in the middle of the action when Hollywood first spun off its axis. Unexpected blockbusters like Jaws, Star Wars, and E.T. the Extraterrestrial forever changed the way the film factories were regarded by the money men. Watching the lines wind around the block at theaters in the U.S. and overseas, the Michael Eisners and Rupert Murdochs of the world recognized that movies were not just a business but a downright bonanza. If a film could make $500 million almost inadvertently, why not build an assembly line that would systematically tap into these markets? This strategy ignored the fact that nearly all of the early blockbusters were envisioned by their creators as personal films. George Lucas envisioned Star Wars not as a sci-fi event movie, but as a quirky moral parable. Global giants like Murdoch's News Corporation, Viacom, Seagram, Sony, and the like were not interested in these subtleties, however. Saddled with huge debt, they desperately needed product for their global distribution platforms. The new era of movies as merchandise had begun. For insight into the impact of all this, one need only eavesdrop on the meetings of Hollywood's decision-makers. In the late 1960s and 1970s, the debate on whether or not to greenlight a picture involved a mere handful of studio executives. I was involved in hundreds of such meetings during stints at three different companies. One executive might comment on the script. Another would assess the cast or director. In the end, the key questions usually were, did the project stand a reasonable chance of finding a mainstream audience in the U.S.? Given the size of the budget, were the downside risks acceptable? Upon occasion, an executive would even be forgiven if he mumbled something inane like, I think this will be a really good movie. I vividly recall the abortive debate on whether or not to proceed with the idiosyncratic cult classic Harold and Maude, starring Bud Court and Ruth Gordon a love story with a fifty-year age gap between the lovers. Despite the fact that the script was a hoot and the young director, Hal Ashby, was deemed a real comer, several of my colleagues understandably didn't get it. My argument in favor of the project was simple. I felt it was hilarious and unique. Skeptics at the studio finally surrendered, mainly because they found the story too annoying to even discuss. Besides, for $1.2 million, how embarrassed can you be? proffered one of my colleagues with an air of resignation. Though the quirky comedy opened to empty theaters, it ultimately turned a handsome profit, running on a few screens for over a decade. Today the decision as to whether to greenlight a movie may involve scores of executives, with the debate hinging on questions like, Will the movie play well in Europe and Asia? How strong is the video and DVD aftermarket? Will the subject matter attract marketing partners like a McDonald's? Will there be tie-ins for toys and other merchandising opportunities? Could the storyline inspire a theme park ride? Could the narrative be captured in a brief TV commercial? 
Will the star be willing to travel to openings around the world? If the budget is north of $60 million, is co-financing money available? Can the producers find a completion guarantor who will intercede if overages occur? Welcome to the world of movies as merchandise. In the era of the event picture, no one has time to worry about anachronistic issues like whether the story works or the characters are believable. The process of starting a movie is more akin to introducing a new toothpaste with one major difference. With toothpaste, the key lies in marketing prowess, not in the quality of the product. With a film, every moviegoer in America seems to know from day one whether it works or not. If the movie isn't entertaining, no amount of ad spending can make a difference. Which steers us right back to the basic question, who killed Hollywood? Who's responsible for an environment in which the studios are hell-bent on building an assembly line for event pictures?